Welcome to Rethink Retail, the show where we dive into the stories and strategies behind some of the most successful brands on the planet. From brick and mortar giants to e-commerce disruptors, we uncover the secrets to their success and deliver the keys to true retail transformation. So ask yourself, are you ready to rethink retail? The future of retail starts now. Welcome to Retail Therapy, a Rethink Retail exclusive podcast series where we examine retailers that have a unique history, are making innovative changes to their business model, or are overcoming challenges in order to stay relevant in this highly competitive landscape. This week, we'll be looking at a direct-to-consumer startup turned industry giant that turned over $100,000 in debt into a billion-dollar mattress company with the help of influencer marketing and user-generated content. But is their success all it's made up to be? As it happens, staying profitable isn't as easy as hiring Kylie Jenner for your next campaign. That's right, today we're talking about Casper. Checking in for today's sessions are this week's retail therapists, Heather Herzog and Andrew Neelon. Heather is Chief Revenue Analyst at H Squared Research and Research Fellow at Data Catalyst Institute, part-time faculty at Parsons School of Design. Heather lives in a world where fashion, retail, finance, investigative journalism and data research all coexist in perfect harmony, also known as New York City. She's the Chief Research Analyst at H Squared Research, a data-driven research firm for registered investment advisors and fellow at DC think tank Data Catalyst Institute. She is also consumer spending commonist of Vogue India and author of the book Black Market Billions, How Organised Retail Crime Funds Terrorists, published by FT Press. Heather uses her expertise in the retail space to advise startups in Silicon Valley and with Parsons, the new school of fashion incubator, XRC Labs, and as part-time faculty teaching, a class on technology and innovation. When she's not expanding her business and advising early stage companies, she's raising awareness about the criminal activity linked to the black market and counterfeit products. She created a companion app to the book available in iTunes to help people identify and spot counterfeit merchandise sold on the black market. Forbes magazine recently named her as one of the most influential South Asian women in the United States. Andrew is the founder and CEO of OneRec, a platform whose mission is to lower the barrier to entry to offline retail for DTC brands through its Clicks to Bricks Playbook newsletter, which details various strategic frameworks and tactics for brands looking to grow offline or to use their geospatial data for other growth initiatives. Its digital retail expansion community, which is a knowledge center and Slack community for aspiring new or seasoned brick-to-mortar professionals across brands, vendors, landlords, and investors, and consulting and advisory services. Prior to OneRec, Andrew held executive and leadership roles across various combinations of finance, strategy, retail strategy, and real estate at Interior Define, Bonobos, Walmart, and Hudson's Bay. Business Insider recently named him as one of 15 retail power players revolutionizing the in-store shopping experience. So we have a couple of fabulous guests with a lot of experience to join in this conversation today. 
Before we dive into today's therapy session, let's first begin by learning a little bit more about our patient's history and what got them here today. Casper was founded in 2014 by five friends, Philip Krim, Neil Parikh, T. Luke Sherwin, Jeff Chapin and Gabe Flatman. In January 2014, the company raised $1.85 million in its first round of funding. And after the company's launch in April, Casper received an additional $13.1 million in Series A funding by August. Parikh and the other Casper founders expected to sell about $1.8 million worth of mattresses in their first year. Instead, they hit that number in just two months. Casper launched its flagship product, the Casper Mattress, in April 2014. The mattress was designed to be delivered in a compact box and made of foam layers for optimal support and comfort. In 2015, the company raised an additional 55 million in Series B venture funding and an additional 170 and 100 million in 2017 and 2019 respectively. The company gained early success and attention through its innovative marketing strategies including quirky advertisements and a strong social media presence, including a sponsored post about the brand by Kylie Jenner in 2015. Furthermore, in 2015, Casper expanded its product line to include additional mattress models, such as the Wave and Essential, catering to different sleeping preferences and budgets. Their growth continued, and by 2017, the company had expanded beyond mattresses to offer other sleep-related products, including pillows, bed sheets, and bed frames. In 2019, they introduced their first brick-and-mortar stores known as Casper Sleep Shops, thus allowing customers to experience and purchase Casper products in person. The company went public in February 2020, listing its shares on the New York Stock Exchange, but after a turbulent 2020-21 season on Wall Street, Casper went private again in late 2021 with the introduction of the company's new CEO, Emily Arrow. As of 2023, the brand has over 70 physical stores with intentions to pave a way into the wholesale market, including retailers such as Nordstrom, Sam's Club and Ashley. In an interview with the businessofhome.com earlier this year, Arrow disclosed that last year was a tough revenue time. We spent a lot of money on operational things and infrastructure to service the wholesale business, she said. In 2023, we'll see our numbers come back beating 2022, and we're already seeing significant improvements in our bottom line, which brings us to today. Let's start off by discussing some of the factors that have led to Casper's current condition. What's your take on the current perception of Casper today? So what I'd like to do, guys, is first start really at looking at the company's history. And he throws, I was interested to understand why you thought their business model was such a quick success when they started up with this DTC approach. Well, who wouldn't want to be interested in a company that is tagging and getting someone like Kylie Jenner to be the influencer, I should say, face of the brand? The company came out at around a time where influential marketing or influencer, I should say, marketing was really at the forefront. And she is and continues to be or was and continues to be the biggest influencer when it comes to that kind of marketing with product. So I think having her on board and really talking about the mattress and unboxing it, you know, talking about how wonderful it is, 
really made that company shoot into the stratosphere. And I think that created the foundation of a lot of generated interest. They, they got another, you know, set of influencer marketers to kind of come on board and do the same thing. And that just generated a, a, a whole lot of buzz. Also, you were noticing the customer starting to rethink the way they were purchasing things. And that is the D2C model, direct to consumer. When Casper, you know, was right at the sort of apex of all of that, not to say that D2C is not, you know, of focus and people aren't still, you know, engaging in that, but Casper really came out there and wanted to turn the mattress industry on its head by saying, we're going to send you those mattresses. So it was something new. They served a white space of doing something different. It just seemed like they got all their ducks in order, not to use a cliche, to really launch it. And this is exactly what they did. But what they didn't realize is that they were coming upon one of the most life-changing situations in retail history, which was the pandemic. So that had a massive impact on the company. And what we're seeing now is kind of them picking up the pieces to try to revamp the company and really kind of restart to its once glory. Thanks, Heather. And Andrew, I mean, I was always intrigued when I saw Casper come to the market because I didn't see mattresses as a huge growth opportunity, DTC. What are your thoughts on how they sort of built this business up from the start? Yeah, I think Casper, much like every other D2C brand out there, had a lot of different factors that really helped its meteoric rise. It, it launched in a, the company was founded in a time when e-commerce was just beginning to become a thing and yeah. become more commonly shopped than brick and mortar in some cases. And at a time when capital was cheap and growing through marketing channels like Facebook and Google in ways that hadn't really been done before, certainly for mattresses. And so I think when you put all those factors together, for any category that's kind of boring, could use a bit of a, of a redo, you know, mattresses is, is a perfect example of a category where the, the shopping experience is boring, it's dry, it's not very great in general. And then you put some really good branding on it, you catapult it with cheap capital, and you do it in a way to heat this point where you've got celebrities and influencers really promoting your brand, kind of a really great recipe for success. And I think a lot of the reasons why it succeeded is also the reasons why it started to face a bunch of challenges, both yeah. leading up to and even after COVID, uh, which uh, we'll get into in a bit. No, I agree. And I'm intrigued when we've seen things like cars, sofas and mattresses sort of push their DTC because me as an old shopping dinosaur, I always sort of view those as things I would want to try before I buy. The classic cliche is you spend a third of your life sleeping, if you're very lucky. Why would you go and spend hundreds of dollars on a product like, that you want to lie on and be comfortable with without trying it? I mean, what are your thoughts here, Heathrow, about how they were able to take that principle of a product you would almost always lie on in a shop before you buy and turn it into something that's influencer-led and people are willing to buy without having tried it? And listen, I'm a kid that grew up in the 80s. So we were all about malls and mall culture and shopping. We left the house, got in the cars per our parents. And if they would let us, right, I had a pretty strict mom and go to the mall and shop. And I would shop with my parents and my mother. And that was a real ritual. I was looking at the Manhattan Associates benchmark, right? The unified benchmark. And at the beginning of the report, it says a third of the American population is younger than Amazon. Okay. So 
just if we can crystallize that, a third of the American population is younger than Amazon, which means they don't really understand the surprise and delight of going in and shopping and experiencing product. And just to take that further as an anecdotal observation, I have two four and a half year old daughters. They've been in Whole Foods once. They've been to the mall once. And by the way, this is what I do. This is my job. I go to the mall. I observe this. This is 80%, 90% of what I do on a daily basis, right? So my daughters don't understand that. Their surprise and delight comes from the unboxing of things. When the Amazon boxes come, they're excited. When the grocery boxes come, they're excited. So that is what is changing. What we are failing to understand, and maybe it's because us dinosaurs don't get it, but we need to get it, is that the surprise and delight is coming from that. And I think the founders, you know, I haven't sat and interviewed them or really have gotten inside their heads. It's only been from interviews that I read for them. But I think they really tried to see around corners when it came to changing the industry of mattresses and taking that baseline of D to C and where surprise and delight was coming from and how the young consumers are getting their merchandise. And again, that was really solidified, I think, during the the throes of the pandemic when we really couldn't go outside and get our merchandise and product. But they sort of, they knew that was the future somehow. And a lot of D2C companies did. The execution then becomes the focus and whether or not they executed that properly. And I don't, that's where the kind of pitfalls came. Can you really balance profitability and purpose in retail right now? A new IDC snapshot brought to you by Avonade says yes. Explore the study and learn more about how to be cost conscious with a conscience in a challenging retail environment. Head to avonade.com forward slash responsible retail. I mean, Andrew, do you think this is a combination of, I say a perfect storm's the wrong way because it makes COVID sound like a huge positive, but the uniqueness of being forced online because the fear of a pandemic and government legislation closed the stores. So we had to shop online and we had that growth and explosion of influencer marketing. Casper were fortunate enough to actually get one of the premium influencers out there. Do you think it was the uniqueness of those situations that drove that? Because I struggle to see how Casper would have grown this without the uniqueness of a massive influx of online activity and the benefit of being able to get one of the leading influencers of the world to help them. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think the circumstances of the time definitely was an accelerant for a lot of businesses and brands, especially those that were already well positioned online. And the contrast can be said be true of those who are exclusively offline. You know, luxury brands are a category that come to mind that quickly realize, oh man, we really need to figure out our e-commerce channel. And so I don't know if I would go so far as to say that's the exclusive reason. So I think there were a lot of businesses that were very strong businesses, were probably on a great trajectory of growth even before those circumstances and before everybody was really forced to shop digitally. But it certainly was an accelerant. And I think, I don't know the details of Casper specifically for this, but I'm sure there was some element of truth to this, that a lot of brands that did accelerate during COVID kind of had this false notion that that acceleration was going to and that narrative is what kind of was told externally whether to investors or to new hires that we're growing not because of covid but because we're a really great brand and i think certainly in retrospect and certainly for categories that are in the home and furniture space are looking back and realizing okay yeah there was probably a little bit of both but there was certainly a little bit of a 
temporary accelerant due to the circumstances. Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that we had that uniqueness of COVID. You had a lot of people at home. They were they were on furlough. They were still earning money and they had time. And I think home improvement became one of those huge growth areas. And you can imagine, very stereotyping, you can imagine all these wives going to the husbands, you've been promising to paint that garden fence for two years. You've got no excuse. Or it's like collectively going, right, let's do some makeover work in the house. So things like sofas and, and mattresses are probably a prime opportunity. I wanted to just sort of just shift a little bit onto the fact that we, as you guys said before we started recording, we don't have very up-to-date figures on their performance. But starting up, going public, then sort of going private again, suggests that there are a few issues here. And I was interested to understand your thoughts on where there may have been challenges and problems outside of the fact that post-COVID, we've realized that a lot of us are going back to normal, normal, and the new normal wasn't this great new permanent thing that was going to be coming through. I mean, what are your thoughts on that, Heather? I have a couple of thoughts. Well, first, I think we, with Casper specifically, I just wanted to add on to what Andrew was saying. Casper made mattress shopping sexy. I mean, the branding was pretty. The when you think of furniture shopping in general, it's pretty boring, but we have to do it because of utility, right? Same thing with mattresses. Look at the font of Casper. It's purple. It's in this sort of like relatable font for young people and millennials. You look not to diss, but you look at the font for Sealy. It really hasn't changed that much in 40 or 50 years. So they made that sexy and it made the consumer, I think, with the way the consumer was shopping, with the branding, with it making it exciting, people wanted to be a part of it. I remember, again, anecdotally looking at it and thinking, maybe it is time for us to get a new mattress. Maybe it wasn't. You know, I clearly was about to drop $700, $800 on a mattress because it just looked cool and it came in a box. I mean, who would have ever thought this all seemed so interesting? And they created a little bit of FOMO behind it. So I think that in addition to riding this wave of we have to just shop at home and we have to have things delivered, that really added to the Casper mystique. People wanted to be a part of it. But I wanted to point out to your point of what happened with Casper. As we had mentioned, it went public. They wanted to raise a lot of capital for innovations. They wanted to, this is their big sort of thing. And what was really interesting is that the company went public a month before the pandemic's shutdown happened. So Casper goes public a month out. All of a sudden, we have this pandemic on our hands and things are starting to shut down. So I'm just going to read this quote here. This is from Retail Dive. Casper, like many D2C brands, struggled to reach profitability despite increased demand in the home sector. While its revenue grew 13% in fiscal 2020, the brand's net loss neared 90 million. So they were having net losses despite the fact that people were shopping online. Where do I think that them reclaiming the company or buying the company back, taking it private for half the price? Was that a smart move? Maybe, maybe not. From an investor standpoint, no one likes that. From a, I would think, an executive standpoint, no one likes to buy back a company at half the cost or half the price they initially went public with. But as we're seeing the company evolve now, there are a lot of uh, brick and mortar stores. They are innovating. They're finally doing the innovations that they wanted to and kind of marrying that D2C experience along with that in-person experience. 
for those of us dinosaurs that are used to going into stores and buying things. The good old bricks and mortar. I mean, what are your thoughts on this, Andrew? Because it is odd, isn't it? Because going public just before lockdown and create, having this unique environment that we never imagined of people at home with time and money on their hands in their houses, you'd think this would be an opportunity to print money. But as he's saying, you know, they were losing money despite growth. Does that suggest that their business model is flawed or they weren't adapting to their unique situation? Yeah, I think their whole kind of sets of decisions and the path they took is very reflective of just the entire D2C landscape. And you're certainly seeing it now with the valuations of Allbirds, Warby Parker and the like. The D2C model has its flaws. I think Casper started doing a good job of diversifying its channel mix. And the interesting thing about when they IPO'd is the timing couldn't have been worse. And having been in and working with multiple D2C brands during that time, there were two things that happened with that shift where people couldn't shop in store. The first was that everybody, and I alluded earlier to luxury brands, started advertising online. When you think about the landscape of digital marketing, 90% of spend, certainly at that time, was really across Facebook, Instagram, and Google. And the way that those systems work is it's an auction system, right? So when you have this kind of duopoly of a marketplace and a bidding structure, and you have everybody rushing into those two channels, or I guess three if you include Instagram as a separate one, then everybody's bidding everybody else up. And arguably for a lot of the same customers, most D2C brands are targeting the same kind of demographic. And what ends up happening is your marketing costs go through the roof your efficiencies go down dramatically and you can't leverage your stores, at least in, in COVID, right? Because they were all closed. And so then pile on top of that, all the supply chain challenges. I think Casper's manufacturing is domestic, so they weren't quite as exposed as everybody else who was were importing internationally in certain China tariffs. It's just, it's a tough business model to make work if you are purely e-commerce. And while it had its benefits, certainly in the beginning of COVID, that benefit quickly diminished as everybody else piling into the marketplace, piling into the channels and bidding up everybody else and therefore just driving more into that lack of profitability. And so I think with the return to stores and with people coming out of COVID, I think what we'll see, not just of them, but anybody who has stores or just a generally diversified set of channels, they're going to be the ones that will make it out of this. And there will be the ones that will not just grow, but grow profitably. And so, yeah, I think they, what kind of made the brand succeed in the beginning of COVID is also what is kind of contributing to some of their downfall now, which is exclusive or near exclusive distribution. Yes. And we've seen, you know, Warby Parker were the darling of the DTC startup, weren't they? And then when we had Nike accelerating their DTC program, that was almost like an endorsement that works. Even if Nike are cutting out wholesale and going controlling their own destiny. But we're even seeing Nike now starting to reestablish their relationships with Foot Locker and other brands. And we're sort of starting to understand that the broad spread of channels, this classic omni-channel, you know, the more touch points you have, the easier it is for your customer to buy in the way they want to buy, which is very difficult for startups because they're small and you end up spreading yourself very thin. So it, it is a big challenge for them, definitely, I think. I mean, and, and also we, extremely we, capital yeah, intensive, you know, like the channel diversification is, I think, what will both protect and unlock a lot of brand growth. But there's each channel kind of has its own trade off, whether it's e-com, wholesale or stores. I think the key to survival and growth is having diversification and having as many of them as possible. 
but the to your point, the sequencing of them and, and how you distribute your focus is one of the hardest parts about that. Yeah, definitely. Converting your website traffic into paying customers is a huge challenge for retailers. Add in economic uncertainty and driving growth can be overwhelming. Optimizely is here to help. We're a digital experience platform that helps you personalize your entire customer journey. Our solutions serve the right content to the right people, so shoppers are more likely to purchase products in one visit. Visit optimizely.com for more information today. What I wanted to do is really just touch on things like their consumer and customer experience. Do you have any thoughts or anecdotal stories of how customers got on? Because before we hit the record button, we were discussing about some of the challenges of online returns, which is difficult enough with a pair of sneakers, never mind a mattress. And Heather, you had your own experiences of that part psychological, part logistical challenge of online returns. And it is a potentially huge barrier here and a concern that a lot of people may have. Oh, yeah. I always say the store and the retailer that can stick the landing on returns. And I mean, have someone come over to my house, box everything up and take it away and just refund me right on the spot is the one that's going to end up winning out in the long term. Before we get to that, I just want to give you guys or read you this quote from the CEO of Casper. His name, I think this was Emil RL. He said, the strategy was to be the Nike of sleep. Nobody knows what that means. That sounds very exciting, but hard to execute on. So it seems like, and I know we always talk about the way that the consumer is shopping and that changed and the fundamentals of the company, they weren't really allocating a lot of operating costs to where they needed to. But it seems to me also the executive team didn't really know how to do this, how to really execute it and kind of indicative. They knew they had the idea of they wanted to be the Nike of, right? Who doesn't want to be the Nike of? But to actually execute on that became very, very difficult. To your point about shopping and the personalization of stuff and really the difference between D to C versus being in store. So we were talking about how personalization is so important and how a lot of that comes from being in stores, right? So it's really interesting with this unified benchmark that I have from the Manhattan Associates Unified Benchmark. They, in this study that they did, they interviewed about 144 stores. They were saying that when it came to personalization, 38% of the retailers that they interviewed would give their store associates access to shopper information, purchase history. So when you have access to that shopper history, personalization becomes that much more specific. And, you know, again, we don't have that much information on Casper and how they use shopper information to really get specific about personalization. But I think the idea is that D2C has that much more data on the customer. And I'm not sure, again, this is just me kind of assuming here, I don't have the facts. I haven't spoke to anyone at the company, but I'm assuming that even with all that data, they didn't know how to really hone in on that customer to maybe market other products to them. I mean, let's be honest, we buy a mattress and we have that for 10 to 15 years. We need other things to make sure that we're using that mattress in, to its full capacity. You did mention returns. And I think that also had something to do with that as well. Like I said, I don't love returning things. It's really hard. I don't think I'm alone here. 
And I think just having to deal with that bulky mattress, even if it was after, you know, within a hundred days, how do you pack that up? What do you do? Does someone just come and get the mattress back? I don't know how that would necessarily work. And maybe that was ultimately the deterrent. You think that could be a barrier to purchase the fear of the return in the first place? Yeah. I mean, if I'm really thinking through it, right, if I'm going to make a purchase of anywhere between 600 to 1,500, let's say I'm feeling fancy and had a good year and I'm going to buy a $1,500 mattress. What if it doesn't work? And how do I get that back? For most busy individuals, right, especially if you have kids, the thought of trying to logistically get a mattress back and then try to go through that same hunt when you could have just gone to the store, rolled around on a mattress, hung out on it, and then bought it, and you knew that was the one, seems way more appealing than having to logistically figure out how to get this mattress back and then go back to the drawing board on that mattress. So I would love to pull data on how many people actually returned it or if that was a deterrent, but it certainly is, again, from an anecdotal standpoint, a deterrent for me. I don't know if I would do that. No, that's fair enough. To go back to, I think, one of your earlier questions that kind of ties to this around how did a company like Casper succeed and get people to pull the trigger on something of of that price and, and size magnitude? I think another interesting kind of phenomenon to consider is just the impact that Amazon has had on shoppers' expectations. And so when you think about a company and a product like Casper, the general expectation for really anything on e-commerce these days is that you get free shipping and free returns, no questions asked. I think a lot of that was really kind of conditioned by the Amazon Prime model. And when you think about a business like Casper that now kind of has to fall in line with that general e-commerce expectation, and for a product that is so massive and inconvenient to each point, and, and also just expensive to the company to manage that just delivery and the return reverse logistics. And I heard this, I don't know if it's true, but I had heard that for a lot of mattress brands. If you return the product, they can't resell it. They just dispose of it. And so when you think about many apparel brands or shoe brands, they can repurpose those returns and still sell them and make money off of them. So when you think about a company like Casper, if that anecdote I heard is true, then they can't even make money off returns. So they really need to be mindful of the cost. And when they're kind of caught in this cycle of the Amazon Prime conditioning of the, in the general e-commerce landscape, and for a category that is expensive and they can't make money off of the returns, that's a pretty tough model to work. Yes, Amazon have a lot to answer for, don't they? <laughs> because you, you lack the economy of scale as well. You have a unique product that's hard to return. And like you say, when it's returned, it's waste. You look at that, and, and I know there's a lot of conversations going on about charging returns here in the UK. Some of the leading fashion brands are, and across Europe are starting to charge. And I think everyone's holding their breath, waiting to see, because if you've got a business model of free delivery and free return, has your financial modeling factored in the cost of how many returns? Because I was talking to a fashion brand the other day who proudly stated only 40% of their online orders are returned. 40% was deemed a good return rate. So what's the return rate for a mattress? And it's quite scary to think the model, when it's successful, if you don't have the model right, it just multiplies the problem, doesn't it? And creates greater, greater dissonance as well. So what I wanted to do is just move on to the remedy side of this now. Now we have you two experts in who've had this wonderful insight. What would your recommendations be to Casper? Do we go private again and have another go at that? Change the finance model, expand the products? What are your thoughts, Aether? I would say your branding is on point. I love the logo. I love light blue or a bluish color. Always great. 
I would say that I think the font, everything, branding is really great. I think if I were to sit down with the executive team, I would say you really need to get the logistics in check. You need to figure out exactly. Clearly, there's a challenge in the model if mattresses are so difficult to return and you can't use that product. How are you repurposing that product? Are you mitigating costs by increasing the amount of stores that people can kind of go into? And it looks like that's what they're doing to actually try out the product. I would think about doing partnerships with other brands. You know, there's a great company called Slip. They have these silk pillowcases I use for my hair, but you know, just some sort of sheeting, bedding companies, maybe doing other larger partnerships with companies like West Elm, which I do believe they did, but if they haven't, get on that, do that. And of course, they are really utilizing doing the white label model too for other stores and department stores. Again, I'm leaning back on the unified benchmark, but according to the study that they were doing, they were saying that the department stores that were interviewed for the study, about a third of them are really the leaders of this benchmark because of customer service. So if Casper and the executive team can't really quite get a hold on their customer service and really understand what their customer is doing, lean on the department stores because they have the data. They know exactly what the customer wants, especially when it comes to mattresses. And I think that would really be ultimately really great for them. Distribution is important, especially when you're dealing with something that people buy once in 15 years, once in 10 years. I agree. And Andrew, do, do you have any thoughts on other DTC brands and examples of that Casper could learn from, be they both positive or negative? Oh, man. So, I mean, I think I would say yes and no. I, I truthfully can't think of one that I would look at and single-handedly say that is kind of the kind of gold star of D2C because I think they're all kind of facing the same challenges right now in terms of lack of channel diversification and trying struggling to figure out how to make their unit economics even more profitable. And I think even more so, and kind of building off of your last question, I think one of the strategies some of these brands need to think about is actually scaling down a little. I think a lot of them have been and still continue to choose revenue growth over profitability. And unfortunately, the reality over the last 12 to 24 months, I don't know how much longer, is that scaling is going to be prohibitively expensive. And sometimes you got to pump the brakes. You've got to start earning money at some point. (laughs) You've got to pay the bills. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I think over the last, call it five or more years, these brands have been rewarded for growth at, at all and any cost, whether that meant profitability or otherwise. And the markets are very clearly indicating that the tolerance for that is is waning. And I think that in some cases, you know, if you're in a position where you can pump the brakes a little bit, primarily meaning you have not invested ahead of your growth curve, then I think that's where brands should be a little bit more willing to, to temper things down. And I know that's not an answer anybody wants to hear, especially investors. But as I think about where a majority of this landscape has gone wrong, they've over-invested in growth and at a pretty big cost and in ways that did not diversify their growth. So as I think about what Casper is currently doing and what several other D2C brands are finally embracing, it's channel diversification into wholesale, into brick and mortar. And I think you know, from what I've read, Casper is beginning to embrace wholesale a bit more. They've already had stores. I think they're going down the right path in that regard. And I think another avenue that some D2C brands are taking is really leaning into B2B. 
you know, it's a completely different kind of unit economic profile. The scalability is dramatically different. Depending on how you execute it, it can be extremely cost effective too. And so I think the D2C brands who embrace different channels and embrace B2B as its own channel, I think those are the ones that are going to be kind of most poised for success. That's really interesting. Yeah. Certainly here in the UK, we've, we've seen some of the major nationwide hotel brands offering branded mattresses. And it's a win-win for both of them, isn't it? Very interesting. That brings us to the end of the session, guys. Thank you very much, because you both put in some really interesting thoughts and insights on the brand. It does sound like there's a lot of scope for them to evolve and come through the recent challenges, and, and they can move on from there. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.